What a delight in worship we have here this morning. What, uh, what reason we have to behold and look to Jesus and delight in Him. And uh, we've been spending our time in First John over the past several weeks, and uh, at this moment we are actually going to turn the corner a little bit and we are going to go somewhere else. So we are really turning the corner towards Easter. You've probably already noticed in the grocery store, if you've been down that aisle, you've noticed there's a certain change in the shape of the candy uh, this time of year, right? There's a variety of different pastel things. There's that terrible Easter grass that is back in stores and that will be littered around our houses and tied up in our vacuum cleaners for the rest of the year. That stuff is awful, by the way. Just to emphasize the point a little, it is Easter time, right? And so it is an opportunity for us to turn our eyes to Jesus in a different way. So we've been focusing on knowing Christ in 1 John, and so over the course of the next few weeks, not only preparing our hearts for Easter by talking about the death and burial of Jesus, and then emphasizing on Easter, of course, the resurrection of Jesus, and then taking a couple of weeks after that to see that the resurrection is not just something that was celebrated one time on one morning, but is meant to permeate every aspect of who we are and what we do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with all of that in mind, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19. And uh, we're going to pick up right there in the middle of verse 16. You'll probably see in the way in which your uh, Bible is that uh, there's a sentence that picks up there. And so in John chapter 19, and as you're turning your eyes there and you're thinking about you know, where we are in the Gospel of John, it is helpful to think even before we unpack that of wondering what all has captured your attention this week. We have all sorts of beeps and alarms and, you know, things that go off in our life. There's all sorts of, you know, anytime you even watch the news, you've got the actual news program, you've got alerts that are flashing up in the corners, you've got the little running ticker on the bottom. I mean, we've got all sorts of things going on. And I wonder, as you think of all of that, what has captured your attention? And has the cross of Christ captured your attention lately? Has it loomed large in your view? Because as we think about beholding Jesus, beholding Jesus crucified, beholding Jesus speaking from the cross, beholding Jesus buried, beholding Jesus resurrected, as we think and focus on those things over the next couple of weeks, has He captured your attention? By God's grace and for His glory, may He do so today. Grab your copy of God's Word and start reading with me, if you will, in John chapter 19, starting in verse middle of verse 16, down through verse 24, and this is what we read. It says, So they took Jesus, and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. 
or for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have prepared us in our time of singing your praises to fix our eyes on Jesus, to behold him. And Father, we ask now that by your Spirit at work in our hearts that you would capture our attention. That all those things that have captured our attention throughout this week or maybe throughout our entire lives would fade into the background as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ crucified for us. Father, open our eyes to see who Jesus is and open our eyes to see the wonder of your plan fulfilled. Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name and for his glory. Amen. By the time we get to this place in the Gospel of John, much has already happened. Not only in terms of the ministry of Jesus. Of course, we could start at the incarnation of Jesus. There He is fully God and fully man and He has arrived and He has grown, right? And His righteousness is a demonstrated righteousness. And He's been tempted in every way as we are and yet has been without sin. And He has made it all the way through His ministry and He has unveiled and revealed so much about who He is. And by the time we get to this point, we know we've already made it through a busy week of what was going on with the triumphal entry and Jesus coming into Jerusalem and His eyes fixed on the cross. You can think about the celebration of the Passover that Jesus had with His disciples and the institution of the Lord's Supper. You can think of Jesus crying out and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and the wonder of what was taking place there. You can think of the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus the trials of Jesus, the mockery of Jesus. And so by the time we get to this point, so much has happened. So much of a weighty moment. And in verse 16, we're simply told, so they took Jesus. And there's so much condensed into those four words. Because they didn't just take him. They had no authority but what he allowed. He allowed himself to be taken. And at the moment, at this point, as Jesus is sent off and condemned, at this moment, as you read the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, he would have received the scourging. Now, if you read in John 19.1, he had already been flogged. That flogging was a pre-trial warning to Jesus and everybody else. The flogging which came afterward was much more savage. It came after the official sentence. It was meant to dehumanize the victim for crucifixion. And so you can imagine here, as people are beholding Jesus and looking at Him, many see Him. But very few see Him for who He really is. We are meant to behold Jesus Christ crucified and see Him for who He really is. People just passing by, people being observers to the circumstances would have simply seen what? A criminal? A failed teacher? Some sort of sad victim? Or do we see in the midst of this that this is the eternal judge dying to save us from the judgment that we deserve? 
or in beholding Jesus and who He is, sentenced to death, dying to save us, enduring the sentence that we deserved. You think about all of what, Lord willing, you've read through the Gospel of John before, and if you haven't, I would invite you to do that, preparing for Easter. And thinking about who it is that actually went to the cross and died there for you and then rose from the dead. You think of all of what is unpacked already just in Jesus revealing himself in the Gospel of John. Of being the Lamb of God. You can think of all of his I Am statements. Of him being the bread of life and the light of the world. Of him being the door and the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That he's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the vine. He went out. Notice verse 17, they took Jesus and he went out and he laid down his life according to the will of the Father. He went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. He would have had that horizontal beam laid on his back that had just been pretty well flayed open from the horrifying flogging that he had just received. Somewhere between 75 and 120-something pounds, he would have had that lugged on his back and then carry. We know from the other gospel accounts, Simon of Cyrene would have picked it up and carried it along the way as well. Taken all the way to the place that is referred to here of a skull, Golgotha. Which Golgotha is really just a transliteration of the Greek word that means skull. Even the word that we use oftentimes in songs, Calvary, that's the Latin term, Calvaria, that means skull. It's the same place, a busy thoroughfare. Many would pass by and see what was going on. And in all of our passing by and all of our thinking of, you know, all the details of Easter and all the ways in which, you know, you pull the sort of decor out of the closet and you've got the, the pastel colors starting to come out. And all of those details are we beholding Jesus. And all the busy thoroughfares as we are passing by, what do you see? Because we even use the phrase in passing as a way of saying that we weren't really paying attention. Oh, did you talk to so-and-so today? Yeah, I talked to them in passing. What does that mean? I didn't really hear a word they said. We use it as a way of indicating that we weren't really focused. Is this our approach to the cross of Christ? Fleeting glances? Do we see our sin? Do we understand our sin is this bad? Requiring the death of the sinless Son of God? In turning against the holiness and righteousness that God has revealed concerning Himself, that in order for us to be saved, this had to happen. Behold Jesus Christ crucified. Do you see Him for who He is? Who do you see? Don't just pass by. Behold Him. Slow down long enough to focus. Lean in and look. And as, you'll do, as you do, what you'll see is that this is no 
tragic circumstance. This is God demonstrating His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But even then, most saw only what they wanted to see. Because in verse 18 it says, There they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So you can just think through the process of Roman crucifixion, and it would function like unholy clockwork. Romans did not come up with crucifixion. This was a form of torture and death that had been modified and corrected over the span of several generations to where they had taken something that had been a, an opportunity for torture even among the Persians and had now turned it into something that was awful and horrific. They had boiled it down to a terrifying, unholy science. Bound him to a horizontal beam and have spikes driven to him. Then fastened to the vertical beam and his feet folded one over another and fastened to that beam. It was meant for agony so that with every, every breath you would have to pull up on the wounds in your arms and stretch out your lungs in order to take another breath. And the intent was to make death as awful and horrifying as humanly possible. And there they crucified him. The sinless Son of God, who knew that the only hope for me and for you was this. And out of love, He went and He did it. And beside Him, look, there are two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And it's like you can close your eyes and you can see with. The mental picture. There you have Jesus in the middle and you've got two others on either side. Two others who we know are insurrectionists from the other gospel accounts. Who were receiving a death sentence that they knew that they deserved. And here's the Son of God crucified between these two. And you can even remember in Luke chapter 23 and the wonderful reality of the fact that even as the two of them piled on, mocking Jesus along the way, Jesus in His mercy and God in His grace, one of those thieves became a believer. In the final moments of the worst thing that's ever happened in human history, He finally looked upon Jesus in faith. And heard the wonderful words of Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. And as you look and you behold Jesus on the cross, you start to see his character. See, our character comes out in the worst of moments, doesn't it? Who we really are comes pouring out, not in the easy times when everything's going good and it's fine. It's when things get bad that we find out who we really are. And that in the worst moment, as not only he's enduring the horrifying reality of the physical affliction, he is enduring the full outpouring of the wrath of God against the sin of all who would repent and believe. And even then, he's looking at a man who had mocked him for hours and giving him mercy, giving him grace. Behold, Jesus crucified. See Him for who He is, the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. The giver of life, 
dying our death and still giving life in the face of that death. It's like we start to look and we start to see and we start to behold and all of a sudden we start to take a double take. Because in the midst of what was meant to display Roman authority, what we find is we're looking at prophetic fulfillment. You can even think of Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12 as his, his, he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And it's like the more you look, the more you get amazed. The more you behold Jesus crucified, the more you see him for who he is. No more grainy pictures. Because sometimes for us, as we think of the cross of Christ, sometimes we feel like we're the little kid back with the old color TV with the weird little knobs on it. And you know, like the thunder knob where you would have to turn the channels. And then once you finally get to a channel that you want to watch and you got the little dial there and you're trying to get it to, to dial down, right? You all remember what I'm talking about? I know that because I used to be the remote. Trying to get that thing to come through. And you're finally, oh, there it is. See, God in his grace does that for us. Finally, we, op- we see and he's opening our eyes. And the more we look, the more amazing it gets. And it's coming in full HD clarity. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Behold Jesus crucified. See him for who he is. And as you do realize that there were a lot of people who had a lot of different ideas even then. Because in verse 19 it says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So Pilate writes, has this inscription written. He's the judge over Judea, at least in the Roman sense. He's pronounced this sentence. He's putting this placard above the cross of Christ. And this was a common thing to do. So the people who were walking by would be like, what's this one crucified for? What's this about? It's an easy way to warn people. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. Who's this guy? Pilate, who had at least tacitly stated that Jesus was innocent six times before this, has now written this inscription as the reasoning for why Jesus is crucified. Here he is. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, was Jesus of Nazareth? Yeah, in a way. That certainly doesn't tell the whole story. And you can imagine even in writing it, right, even in saying it, you can imagine the people passing by who would have had the similar response as some of his initial disciples did. Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And people walking by the cross being like, doesn't look like it. Doesn't appear so. The Messiah? No way. Couldn't be. K 
king of the Jews. Interestingly enough, Pilate had asked Jesus specifically in John chapter 18, verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? At which point Jesus started to unpack the reality that his kingdom is much bigger than just that. He's the eternal king, the king over all. But here he is dying as king of the Jews. Because Caesar would have no rivals. But as we read this and we think to ourselves, well, does this sign match what they see? Because bad signage is very frustrating, isn't it? If you've ever been on the road and you've had bad signage, maybe your Google Maps or whatever is a mess. Next thing you know, you wind up in the middle of somebody's front yard when you're trying to go to CVS. And you're like, what in the world was that about? It's frustrating. It's frustrating when you can walk into a building and you think, okay, I'm going to go this way. And you go that way. And it's like, well, that's not the way at all. I remember going to a hospital and trying to find my way around there. And they had all these lines in the ground that were supposed to take you to where they went. But they had done so much reconstruction in the basement of this hospital that the lines would just stop. And then like... 40 feet away, they'd be down the hall over there. And it's like, what is this? This is terrible. Is the sign accurate? Technically, is he Jesus of Nazareth? Yes. Technically, is he king of the Jews? Yes. Is that it? No. The fullness of his identity is not known simply by this placard. Behold Jesus Christ crucified, born in Bethlehem, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, slain for the sins of the world, the Lamb of God who has come to save you, seeking to save that which was lost. As many would pass by and they would see, King of the Jews, and that's not my king. Nothing good's coming out of Nazareth. What's your response here? Because as we take in all the details, as we linger long and focus, things become a little more clear. You see, this inscription was written not only in one language, Well, Jesus was crucified near the city, and this was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. It's hard to avoid the reality of him. It's as though everything is pointing to him. All of the direction and all the the seemingly way in which one group is trying to insult another is actually directing everybody's attention to Jesus. Written in Aramaic, that's the language of the Jews in Palestine. Written in Latin, that's the language of Rome. And everybody who would be a lover of Rome, the language of, of Greek... That was a common train language in the market. So pretty well anybody anywhere near here who would have walked by could have read that sign and understood who was there. As if embedded in here is an indicator that what's going on here is bigger than just this place. What's going on here is bigger than you imagine. Are we meant to see that? Oh, we are. 
Hebrews chapter 13 even says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There he is dying to save. There he is our conquering king where our salvation is sure. His grace is applied. His love is displayed. And I wonder as we see this, as we behold Jesus on the cross, is it personal to you yet? Do you see him for somebody else before you've seen him for yourself? You need him. I need him. We all need him. But before you go pointing to somebody else and saying, I know what you need, look to Jesus crucified and saying, Lord, I need you. And as we behold the cross, that this should be personal to us, not simply fodder for debate. Because verse 21 says, So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So the chief priests are upset about this, and they're trying, they've been trying this whole time to get rid of Jesus. And they're looking at this sign, and they would be looking at this sign from a distance because they don't want to get anywhere near the cross because they don't want to be defiled for Passover. And so they're looking off from a distance, and they're reading the sign. They're like, he wrote what? And so they're going to go find Pilate. we got to get him to change this thing. And only Pilate would have authority to change it. We need to get somebody to edit this. You can't have it written, the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. They're they're wanting to say, don't state this as a fact. State this as a claim. They wanted Jesus to be ashamed, but in reading the inscription, they were the ones who felt ashamed. What do you feel? Is that your king? Would your king do this for you? Does your king step into this? I hope he's your king. What we find here, even at the, in the midst of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, are these constant attempts at redefining who he is. It's nothing new. It's not new to our day and age. This was going on from the very outset. Pilate hears the chief priests blathering on about, you can't do that, that's not what this should say. And Pilate looks at them and says, what I've written, I've written. Which seems to be a very fancy political way of saying, nope. Not changing it. It's like you're reading this, and here you got Pilate annoyed, you got the chief priest annoyed, you got opinions varying. What's the truth? And so herein we see the pettiest of arguments going on. Who is he to me? Don't ask that question. Who is he? That's the question. 
Who is this upon the cross? It makes no difference to go on and on about who he is to me as if personal opinion is always right. Is your personal opinion always right? Have you asked the other people that reside in your same house? Don't make that the basis of your truth claim. Who is he? Who has he revealed himself to be? Who is he actually according to his own word? He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the agent of all creation slain for the sins of the world whose indestructible life meant he couldn't stay in the ground. He's the suffering servant who endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against our sin. He's the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pilate was listening to himself. The chief priests were listening to themselves. Whose voice are you listening to? Your own or his? Don't get lost in the sound of your own voice. Look again. Behold the king crucified. Displaying his magisterial authority over sin, death, and hell. To give you everlasting life as a free gift. Behold our Jesus. This isn't tragic. This is planned. To save you. So that God would be both just and the fact that sin is punished, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, because Jesus was punished on your behalf. Behold, Jesus Christ crucified. See him for who he is, but there's even more. Verse 23 says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. And we start to read this, we're like, we're talking about clothes now? But lean in. Behold Jesus Christ crucified and see the Father's will unfolding. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments. And so the soldiers are seemingly in control of everything, doing whatever they want to do. It looks like everything is completely out of the hands of Jesus. Is it? Now they took his garments, we're told here, very, it's very specific detail even. Took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. So at any crucifixion, you would have a centurion sort of assigned to the whole event as one who is ruling in authority. And around each cross, you would have four soldiers assigned to what was going on. And so they're looking at this whole thing, and you, you, know, you can just imagine in their own hearts and in their own lives... Now, crucifixion was not a daily event, but it was a pretty regular occurrence. It's not something that they were entirely unfamiliar with. And for them, it was also bonus day. And so you can feel the weight of just human cruelty here. It's time for us to take his stuff. And they start to divide it up. His headgear, his outer cloak, his belt, his sandals. They're looking at it, it's like four parts. Four guys, okay. They, they split it up. Go home with a souvenir. 
a little token of crucifying the Son of God. There is upon the cross. And the only thing left that was of any of their attention that they thought worth of any value was this tunic. This nicer garment. That might have some value. And as they're at the foot of the cross of Christ, rolling the dice over who's going to get this shirt, the priceless Son of God is dying on the cross behind them. Focusing on these pitiful bits when what was beyond value was being displayed behind them. And little did they know that more was going on than they had any idea. That a thousand year old prophecy was about to be fulfilled in the midst of their own actions. And what looks tragic, it's like you look again and you lean in a little. It's like as you're tracking along with the Gospel of John here, it's like you're just zooming in closer and closer and closer and closer. And the closer you get, the more you see. And it's in all these small details. We see God's providence in every part of this. This tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom. And they said, well, let's not tear it. Let's cast lots for whose it's going to be. They start playing dice at an execution, playing games at the cross of Christ. Maybe we're reading this and you're like, well, why this detail? The Roman soldiers are thieving? That's no surprise. The Roman soldiers are gambling? Well, that's no surprise. The Roman soldiers are wanting something of value? That's no surprise. It's because we need to see There's more going on than what they even realized. And we need to see that we need to stop playing games at the foot of the cross and lift our eyes to see Him. To behold Him. They just wanted a few extra dollars. And it's like in the unfolding of a quilt and piece by piece, the picture is becoming all the more clear and all these details to to display. And it's like you're watching, you're seeing, behold Him on the cross and you're seeing the Father's will unfolding. Because as they're having this pitiful, petty argument, we're told this was to fulfill the Scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. These soldiers didn't have a clue in the world what they were doing. They're fulfilling Scripture. What they, had, what they were doing had been described with precision a thousand years before they even had the thought enter their mind. In their cruel thievery, they were actually displaying the identity of he whose cross was casting a shadow over their gambling game. The scripture that says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Where's that quote from? Psalm 22. 
You remember how Psalm 22 starts? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's like you could go back and you could read Psalm 22. And it's like reading a commentary on the crucifixion of Christ a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. It's like standing there at the foot of the cross. And it kicks off with hearing the words of Christ from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then along the way, you're reading along with Psalm 22, and you find yourself reading striking, I mean, specific things. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. You can think of Psalm 22, verse 16, right? They have pierced my hands and my feet. You can think of Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Then you can think that's not the end of the story, though. Because Psalm 22 ends with this, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Done what? Reconciled us to the Father. Saved us from our sin. They thought they were playing a game for a shirt. They were displaying the will of the Father unfolding that is a declaration of salvation for all who repent and believe. What an amazing testimony here. God gave this. God has recorded this, these details that we would look and see from where we are right now. Behold, our Messiah, our King, our Savior, dying to save us. So we can read the end of verse 24. It says, so the soldiers did these things. That's true. They did do those things. But the soldiers weren't the only ones doing things that day, were they? While the soldiers did these things, God was doing something else. Something far bigger and far better. Something well beyond a covetous moment. Something far greater than gain from a dice game. God's plan in the death of the sinless Son of God for our salvation. Because we who are image bearers have, reveal, have rebelled against the one who has made us. He's made us in His image. And we said, I don't want you. And so we go our own way. We walk in our own wisdom. We violate His law. We violate our own conscience. We violate the testimony of creation. We do all of these things. And our only hope of salvation from our sin is Jesus Christ crucified on the cross and risen from the dead. The Son of God had to justify us with God the Father. He who is our righteous substitute, enduring the full affliction and full outpouring of the wrath of God against our sin and clothing all who believe in His righteousness. Jesus, who is our propitiation, who died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead. God did here what we could never do, reconciling us to Himself through faith in Jesus Christ. The soldiers only thought they were in control. They didn't have control over anything. Behold, Jesus Christ crucified. What has captured your attention today? This is no tragedy. This is a plan to save you. He who fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law died our death 
who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He who is the fountain of forgiveness that flows and cleanses us from our sin. Look, see, behold him. See Jesus for who he is. See the Father's plan unfolding. And when God opens your eyes to see what's left to do, repent and believe. Turn away from all the ways in which you have trusted in yourself, in your own way to save yourself, in your own sin, in the embrace of your own sin, in whatever way in which that's displayed in your own life. No more hoping in your own opinions. No more trying to look at your life and just saying, I'm going to get mine out of every moment. Look to Jesus Christ crucified. Behold Him on the cross and know forgiveness of sin, everlasting life, the sanctifying reality of His presence for all eternity, and know that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Today is another chance to repent and believe. Won't you take Him up on it? How will you respond? as we behold Jesus Christ crucified. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are amazing. Your love is astounding. God, in this moment now, forgive us for paying such attention to so many things that do not matter. And capture our attention and capture our affection as we behold the cross of Christ. Father, we pray that in this moment now, for any here who have never known you, that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would cry out to you, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead. And Lord, that they would leave this place justified because of what you've done in sending your son to this cross. Father, for all of us in here, we fix our eyes on Jesus. May our response to him on the cross who died our death was buried and rose again as we fix our eyes on Jesus. May the response of our heart and life in this moment bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray.